Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 23. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am very excited today to introduce my special guest, Scott Whitehead. Scott, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. Okay, good to have you here. Scott Whitehead has been active in the 12-volt industry for over 25 years. He was the founder and president of Innovative Audio from 1988 to 2004. Today, he owns and operates Benchmark Motoring in Bellevue, Washington, a premier automotive audio retailer and custom installation company. Benchmark is no ordinary stereo installer. With multiple awards for his company, Scott and his talented team focus on quality and custom installations on virtually every top-name brand in the automotive industry. Scott truly sets the benchmark for an approach that is noted for innovation and focuses on keeping the integrity of the vehicle at factory standards while greatly enhancing the audio-video systems beyond anything the factory could ever dream of. I'm a Benchmark customer, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that Scott and his team are simply the best. So, Scott, I've told the listeners a little about you, so please take some time and share some more about your history, your business, your interests, and your passion for automobiles. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. As you said, I've been doing this since high school, basically, and I have always had a passion for music, always had a passion for cars, always had a passion for technology, and have been a tinkerer since I was old enough to rummage around in my dad's toolbox. And so uh, this business is really just sort of a natural extension of all of those interests. I've been lucky enough to be able to find a way to uh, have it put a roof over my head since I was a kid. So this is really all I've ever officially done um, as a career, and uh, we're still having fun doing it today. Take us back to how you started. I know originally you were you started a, a first business and then that evolved into a second business. So maybe share with the listeners a little bit of how you really got the business going and, and got it started because obviously audio installation of vehicles is highly competitive. Did you start doing it for friends and then that grew into a business or do you just put a shingle out somewhere and say, hey, I'm going to do this? Uh, no, Mark, it's actually the sort of definition of a grassroots uh, business. I started in my folks' garage out in Woodenville when I was in high school, and I was originally working for friends and sort of got to the point where I was doing enough of that that somebody said, hey, you should charge a couple bucks to do that. And uh, so I started doing it to make a little bit of extra money, I guess, by the time I was a senior in high school. I just sort of kept doing that. I would do it in the summers after school, just sort of continued to evolve what I was doing for my friends until it evolved into a slightly slightly larger operation. And at some point, my folks were eating sawdust uh, for you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner from all the activity <laughs> that was in the garage. And, and uh, we decided that maybe we should go try to find a place to do it. But that was only after uh, we had sort of turned the garage into a workshop and and made the house nearly unlivable. (laughs) So pure entrepreneur from the beginnings. And as you built 
business up and finally went out on your own. What were some of the the things that that came along your way? Because that's a usually a pretty big jump, and that's usually a jump from working at home and kind of a hobby and going into professional business. Maybe you can share a little bit about those early days of starting Innovative Audio and and how it evolved and grew and and how you got your customer base. Well, I think uh, early on it was I was just looking for an inexpensive place to be able to set up a shop. And I was on my way into college at the University of Washington. And so I was looking for a place where I could work on vehicles. And and if there were a place where I could study there too, it would be great. And I found something that was right up sort of where we are now in the Overlake area that just happened to be sort of across the street from Microsoft. And this was, oh boy, what was it, the late Late eight now, it would have been early 90s, so probably 1990, 1991, we moved in basically right across the street from Microsoft, and the NASDAQ was starting to boom, and we were, at the time I was working mostly for friends and acquaintances, but it sort of quickly changed. The economy was really robust at the time, and there was a lot of interest in cars, and there was a lot of newfound wealth in the area. That's really sort of how we got out and, and got rolling in the early 90s. Well, that uh, ever-important location, 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 where you're setting up basically a retail service-based business and being right across the street from the Microsoft people who were uh, being rewarded nicely back in those days with stocks and stock options. I'm sure there were a lot of wonderful cars that were flowing through that shop of yours. There were, but I want to qualify the um, the location component of it. I had about a 700 square feet at the tail end of somebody else's warehouse, and we didn't have any running water, but um, we did have enough place uh, room that I could put a futon in it so I could study there, and I could shove sort of one and a half cars into it when uh, when it was fully loaded. Um, so it was uh, it wasn't much, but it was it was in the right place, and it gave me. Uh, sort of a, a location to sort of get out and bring the business out of the house and start to feel what it was like to have some expenses and and start balancing running it as a real as a more real operation. You know, everybody has to start somewhere, and lots of times people see a successful operation like you have now, and they think it's always been that way. Kind of like when we're young and we first move out on our own, and we look back at our parents' home and think, "Well, that's the way I should be living with all those nice things and that nice house and." Reality sets in. You got to pay your way. So, you've certainly come a long way. That's for sure. As we continue on your journey, Scott, I'd like to start with a success quote, a saying that's been really instrumental in forming your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars. Yeah. So, take the wheel, Scott. I suppose that uh, the thing that I think about the most um, in terms of what we do every day is that. If you don't have time to do it right the first time, then how will you find time to do it over? Mm, wonderful. Fundamentally, we're really interested in, in level of execution here. And I believe that it's the only thing that really helps us create and sustain our market niche. And so for me, it's it's just very important that we continue to pay attention to the details and to to do things right. Well, that leads into the next question I have for you, and that is, how have you incorporated that quote into your business? And you touched on it briefly, but I'd really like you to go a little more in depth because the level of the kind of work that you do there at Benchmark is is really incredible. And I've had the pleasure of being in your shop and looking at some of the custom installations you do and 
the way you build things. So could you explain a little bit to our listeners about that level of complexity? Try to tell them in an audio way, since they're not there to see it, since you do sell a lot of audio, the level of detail that you guys go into, because it really is incredible. Traditionally, businesses like ours are sort of craftsman-based, maybe like a company that restores vehicles. You might have somebody who's known as an exceptional craftsman or a great designer. The reputation or the ability to operate in that space is sort of derived from either a superstar Uh, individual talent, or maybe, if you're lucky, a team of superstars. What I sort of realized after doing this for probably somewhere between five and ten years is that we weren't going to be able to have that be the only way that we could grow. We needed a way to define specifically what we wanted our technicians, what kind of work we wanted them to be doing, and what the tolerances and standards were going to be. And it didn't really exist. That language didn't really exist in our business. So we had to come up with a way to talk about that internally because we're working on, for the most part, higher-end vehicles that have very high levels of sophistication in their interiors and they're built with very complex methods. And so it's not just about being able to take them apart without breaking them. It was about figuring out ways to integrate with what their designers have done and do that in a way where we're not trying to highlight or show off what we can build, but we're trying to blend into what they've spent so much time envisioning for these cars. I remember visiting your shop once, and you talked about using all the original fasteners when you install systems in vehicles and putting them back together. So in many cases, somebody would look inside and go, oh, this is completely stock, until they turn on the radio. Yeah, absolutely. That is... um That's really what we're chasing is something that looks seamless. We're trying to build things that look like what the designers might have done if they were installing this equipment in the cars that that they've designed. And so we're trying to do that in ways where we're not compromising the integrity. So we don't like to drill any holes. We don't like to cut wiring harnesses up. And we don't cut sheet metal at all. I sort of look at every vehicle and think about, okay, if this vehicle becomes one of those rare vehicles you see on stage at one of these televised auctions going for a thousand times what it originally sold for, we don't want to be the guys who made it so that that car is not original anymore. So everything we do, I want to be able to back right back out of the vehicle and have it be as OEM as it was when we got it. So a lot of uh, engineering goes into what you're doing, technical engineering. I know you have CNC machines. You design pieces to replace perhaps pieces or fit in with other pieces so that everything looks as if the factory had a bigger budget for their audio on the vehicle, they would have done it that way. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Vehicles now um, are advertised with high counts of speakers and whatnot. You've probably seen it in every new luxury vehicle. It's got a 20-speaker system or an 18-speaker system. And that's actually a good thing for what we do because they may have 18 speakers, but the budget to put 18 great speakers in it is not there. There is so much cost incurred between the manufacturing floor and where the car ends up at retail that even if it does have 18 speakers in it, the chances are they're not very great ones. So there's a lot of room for improvement, despite the fact that the factory is getting more involved in, in putting more elaborate systems in their cars. Sure. So the, the old days of cutting a big hole in a door or cutting out the side panel and putting a big, giant, fancy-looking speaker in your capacity, 
that doesn't exist. No, no, that is that's definitely not our world. We are um, in a scenario like that now for us. We would, uh, if we were going to be replacing a speaker, we would pull the original speaker out. We would create a digital drawing of the perimeter of that speaker and capture its mounting points in AutoCAD. And then we would take the speaker that we want to put into that location and adapt, put its mounting points inside of the drawing that we just created for the factory speaker so that our part will bolt right back into the car just like the factory speaker did. Very cool. Well, wonderful work. It is absolutely spectacular work you guys do. Would you share a story with us that really instigated your passion for cars, that pivotal moment in your life when you knew you were a car guy? Because I've seen the stuff you get to play with, and I know you're a car guy. So what was that moment in your life when you went, man, I love cars? Well, you know, I think that uh, that's probably sort of twofold. I mean, originally, my first car, early cars were nothing particularly special, but they did represent the freedom uh, that was just intoxicating to a teenager. I was able to that car let me get to work so that I could earn money to get more involved in the other things that I love to do. So the, my first passion was probably just, you know, I'm free. I can, I can get out and about. And Seattle is such a great place to be able to go do that, that that was fantastic for me. And then I think shortly thereafter, I realized that I could combine a lot of my interests, which were, like I said, tinkering and music and, and cars into working on my own car and, it was a fantastic way for me to to get inspired by something that also had become a huge part of my life. That's what we're all about here at Cars, yeah, is inspiring automotive enthusiasts. And it sounds like the typical, I shouldn't say typical, the traditional freedom in the American vehicle struck you. And that, in turn, enabled you to spread your entrepreneurial wings and put yourself to work and pay your own way. And the rest is history. So that's wonderful. Scott, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and really crawl under the hood and and get our hands a little dirty. I'd like you to share a huge challenge with our listeners or even a great failure that really pushed you to a breaking point. But more importantly, how did you overcome that situation and move on. I would say that having been doing this now for for nearly three decades, there have definitely been some challenges. Um, I I did not have a traditional background in working for other enterprises where I got to see some of this stuff firsthand, and so a lot of this has been sort of on the job learning for me. And I would say that probably the most challenging time period that I can recall recently is the market crash of two thousand nine. And and it was uh, partially because of our history. We had been born in the NASDAQ boom. And I've joked many times about the fact that the economy was so robust at that time that you could, if you had a business license and a pulse, you were likely to have some success. And it really was a forgiving time to give birth to a business. And looking back at it, you know, you feel like at the time, we were making great strides and growing and whatnot. And the reality was is that the economic tide was rising so fast and, and we were there and part of it. And uh, it was just a great time to be born. That said, in 2009, when the market started to correct, you realize that that's not necessarily always the case. Up until then, we had been dealing almost exclusively with operational issues and throughput of labor issues and how do we keep improving our quality while we grow the quantity of work product? 
and the, and we had so we'd spent most of our time focusing on internal operational issues, never even thinking about the fact that you know there, we might have to be concerned about demand. That was probably the most challenging time period that I can remember. And how did you come out of that time period? Obviously, that pushed many people in this country and around the world to breaking points. How did you overcome that and move forward? Well, about a third of our business at that time was dealing with new car dealers in the high-end market. And we had been doing all kinds of things with them at that time. We were preloading vehicles with aftermarket technologies that they were then reselling. What happened was there was, as you know, a a severe impact on the high-end automotive dealership community at the time. And, And it basically took a lot of those people made them so that they wanted to be able to trade their inventory freely. So the concept of preloading aftermarket technology into a vehicle and not being able to trade it easily to another dealer was not appealing to the dealers. And so there was a there was a large impact there in the dealership business. And I think for us, we sort of looked back at our history and said, okay, we have literally done everything from uh, a one-man band to a 30-some-odd person operation if we look back at our history, this is going to land somewhere between the one-man band and the 35-person operation. And all we have to do is become familiar enough with our history to figure out where that's going to be. I mean, we can scale our operations so that we can run through this while there's some healing happening in the economy. Now, it's been uh, it's been challenging, but I think um, in retrospect, I'm glad to have it at this point and have had the ability to have some history to look back upon as as opposed to having it happen much sooner, for sure. Scott, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and share a story when you had a real aha moment in your business, a time when you realized, wow, I can really make a business out of this. I can really make a living out of this. And you knew that it was going to be successful. Tell us what steps you took to turn that aha moment into success. There have probably been a number of, of things that sort of feel like aha moments, but probably the largest one that I can remember is that shortly after I left the house and had my first small location, I became involved in working on Sir Mix-a-Lot's cars. He was a popular rapper here in the area at the time and had a large collection of exotic cars. And he... Uh, very entrepreneurial himself, and also very technical. Had had been a guy who built his own ham radio since he was a kid and had a very high level of understanding of electronics and was also sort of a type A perfectionist, much like I was. And so we sort of hit it off, and I started working on his cars early on. And I guess that's when we went from working on more pedestrian vehicles to really higher-end stuff. And I remember thinking, boy, this he he was at the time very very popular but also very gracious and so spoke highly of us and uh really wanted to see us succeed as well and i remember thinking wow this we may have just gone from being the Volkswagen guys to the Porsche guys overnight because we have a customer who believes in us <laughs> so i think that was probably one of the moments where it, it sort of became evident that we had to keep our up our end of the deal and do great work that we were going to bump into some pretty inspirational people along the way who would who wanted to help us. And I think that's when I sort of realized, wow, this this could be more than what we've been doing. Sure. Well, he is a car guy, for sure. 
seen him at many events up here in the Northwest, and uh, he's got some nice cars. Yes, he does. And he's a great person, too. Just such a nice person. So He is. He's the real deal. Awesome. Let's have a little fun here, Scott. What was your first car, and what kind of fun did you have with that car? Maybe share with us some modifications. I'm guessing there was an audio system involved there somewhere. <laughs> uh, maybe some adventures or great memories you had with that car. Certainly. Well, uh, my first car was actually a 1970 Kingswood station wagon, which was not very fun or inspiring. This is back to the transportation freedom thing I was talking about. It was my, it was my, it was my ride, but it was, I did, definitely did not fall in love with it. It was probably the wrong car to give a, a 16 year old kid. So, but shortly thereafter, I, I got a Volkswagen rabbit, which I fell in love with. And that, that did become my car. And I, I did all kinds of things so that I bought wheels and tires for it that I'd saved up for, um, for most of a summer from, from a gentleman who now works here with us, uh, and has, and has helped us form our performance and styling business. So I did the, the wheel and tire and suspension thing and had it painted and put a big audio system in it. And it was just, um, that was my first sort of canvas to really go out and have fun with a car. Sure. I went, everywhere in it uh, lots of trips over to lake chelan and and um eastern washington and down to see family in portland and uh, i was a ski instructor at the time and drove it up to the pass every weekend and so it was just my ticket to go wherever and it was a german car maybe not real high end but german sure sure your tickets are freedom what year was that <laughs> rabbit uh it was a 79 i think 79 oh okay yeah well, yeah. my, my first brand new car was a 1979 VW Scirocco. Oh, yeah, I had two of those later. I wish I still had those. Yeah, you don't see many of those around anymore. I think they all rusted away. Yeah. How about seller's remorse? Is there a car you've had in the past that you really wish you still had? I yes, there is. And and uh, when I tell you about this car, you're probably going to yell at me after the show too. I had a uh, 1975 911. S anniversary edition mm, okay. back when I was 18. Um, and I had just finished a few large projects and I'd been saving up and saw this thing and had to have it and bought it. And I had it while I was in college and drove for a f few years and sold it to help make the down payment on our first house. <laughs> so, well, we've all done that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, what color was it? Silver. Silver. The, uh, cool. Blue and white tweed interior. Do you remember that one? The special edition. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Nice car. Great. Is there a current project you're working on right now, Scott, that really has you excited and fired up? Yeah, actually, there are. We're, it's actually more of a category than a, than a specific project. We've got some manufacturers who are making equipment that is very specifically designed to integrate into high-end vehicles. Um, as I'm sure you know, Mark, a modern vehicle does not lend itself to changing out the radio or the sources um, easily. In fact, in a lot of cases, it's just a bad idea to do that at all. So for a while now, we've been sort of cobbling together ways to get the output from the factory radio into aftermarket amplifiers and aftermarket speakers. And there's been reasonable ways to do that, but they weren't ideal. There are companies now that are coming out with amplifier units and processor units that integrate uh, very, very well and allow it to be, um, allow you to add to an existing factory infotainment system in a really unobtrusive way. So they're small and they take things into consideration like the current draw 
um, limitations that you might find in a hybrid vehicle. They are calibrated to be able to really interface specific vehicle environments, um, and you can program their processors via computer and some specialized software. And it's really get, what it's doing is it's giving us the ability to do really neat audio product projects that are unobtrusive and that are more interesting to people who aren't pure audio enthusiasts. So you need a lot less equipment to do something that makes a really large impact. And that's that's fun for us to be able to get involved in projects with people who might not normally be purebred audio enthusiasts. Sure. Sounds exciting. That's great. It is. Yeah. Okay. This is a new question on Cars Yeah, and you're the first one I'm going to try this on. So we'll see how it goes, all right? If you were a car, what kind of car would you be? And more importantly, why? Well, oh boy, that's an interesting question. I suppose I would be a, uh, just because it's one of the favorite cars I ever work on, I would probably be a a Porsche 911 of the most current iteration. Mm -hmm. Well, those are pretty nice cars. And why would that be? Why would you pick that car? Well... I really like the way that they're put together. I like the concept of it being an evolutionary design as opposed to a revolutionary design. Mm-hmm. So I love the history component of it um, and the precision. They're built well. From a guy who digs, and I shouldn't say tears apart, but carefully takes apart vehicles, and you see how they're built, I think that's a, a big kudo to the Porsche 911, and it is pretty interesting how that car, basically going back to 64, 65, is pretty much looked the same. Yeah, well, they've definitely done a good job of keeping the styling elements uh, uh, in, in the cues in the vehicle. Uh, the new ones are just a pleasure to drive. There's all kinds of beautiful cars out there. I, I love all the Italian stuff, the new Ferraris and some of the new Lamborghini stuff coming out is absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, I, just, I love the concept of being able to throw the groceries in the trunk and take it to the racetrack. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you did real well. Good. You were the uh, beta test on that new question. I think I'll keep it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Scott, this is a favorite part of our talk. I call it the last lap. And this is where I fire off a series of questions And you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Sure. Okay, here we go. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Well, in in terms of the business, I think it's that we need to continue to get better while we're getting bigger and um, always provide value. Perfect. Would you share one of your personal habits with our listeners that you believe contributes to your success? Um. Sure. I think that uh, that I, I'm still involved in the shop every day. I I want to make sure that our core philosophies are being maintained, and so I, I and to do that, I need to be involved, and I feel like I also need to be able to execute myself. And so I, one of my core philosophies is that I need to be involved in the work that we're doing uh, to some extent for as long as I'm going to be involved in the operation. And I can say you are, because the last time I was up there, you walked out of the back room covered in that same sawdust that your parents were choking on back when you were a kid. Probably so. so. Yeah. I think you have some fun back there, too, don't you? I do. Okay. Is there a resource that you could share with our listeners that you're really fond of, perhaps a website or supplier, something that would be valuable to a car person? 
Well, let's see. I'm sort of a sniper when it comes to the Internet, so I tend to go out looking for things and then burrow really deep into them. So I don't think there's places that I regularly visit. Um, However, I still love to thumb through my Granger and McMaster car catalogs or I've got a German hardware supplier named Hayfula who's from the architectural industry, and I love to thumb through that and see what they're doing for fasteners and mechanisms and that kind of thing. But I'm pretty when it comes to that stuff because I'm usually out looking for a more flush nut or bolt or some fancy rivetable insert or something <laughs> like that. So I don't know how interesting any of this is going to be. I think it'd be fun. Could you spell the the German player sure. Hayfeller? It's uh, H A E F E L E. Okay, great. Thanks, Scott. Is there a book that you've recently read that you'd like to share with us that you really enjoyed? Well, so um, I'm a pretty avid reader, but most of the stuff that I read is not related to the industry. So I used to read a lot of business books and enjoyed that for a while, and and now I've sort of been into um, I was just sort of reading everything else. I'm a big John Krakauer fan. Just I love everything he's done. I love Vince Flynn, uh, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly. But I'll, I'll, I, and I tend to get into what they're doing and read all of it. And so I'm, I'm out looking for new material right now. But uh, I, I don't know that I have a business book per se that, um, that I've read lately. Because that's I've been okay. So, it can be. It, it can be, be any guilty book. pleasures. <laughs> No, I'm glad to hear you're doing that. I uh, suffer from the same thing. My my wonderful wife tells me sometimes, you need to read something just for fun instead of all these business books. So uh, Yeah. Well, good. Well, listeners, I'll make sure that we post everything that Scott's talked about on his show notes page. You just go to carsyeah.com slash Scott Whitehead, and you'll find references and links to everything Scott has shared with us. All right, Scott, we're up to the checkered flag. It's about the end of the race here. And it's time for a challenging question. Sometimes it's challenging for people. I like to call it a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, and it's something you couldn't sell to buy other cars with, and money was no object, what would that car be? And more importantly, why did you choose it? Well, let's see. I, boy, I, I sound pretty boring here talking about Porsches all the time, but I think I would probably have a, a Porsche 550 Spider. Oh, yes. <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, um, I just love the the lines of the car and uh, the simplicity of it. And I think that they're, having been lucky enough to see a few of them before, I think that they sort of uh, show off a lot of things that were to come for Porsche or were yet to come for Porsche. And so I think I think that would be what I would have if I could have anything. And I'm guessing, and this is, is kind of a silly thought. It probably wouldn't have a stereo in it, would it? Well, probably would. Uh, we have been lucky enough to have people drop off, uh, you know, things like 300 SL Gold Wings and tell us, hey, I, I need it to have a Bluetooth. I'd like it to have a stereo, but I don't want to see it. And you know better than to drill into it. And, and we've had the pleasure of being able to do some really fun things with those. So I think if I had one, I would be prepared to drive it, and I would definitely have um, some of the modern comforts in it, but you wouldn't see any of it, and I definitely wouldn't modify it. Well, when you get that car and you put all those in, I want to come over and see where you hide all that stuff, okay? Please do. Okay, that'll be fun. 
Well, Scott, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories and learning more about you and your business. I want to thank you for sharing everything with us, and wondered if you could give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that 550, and let listeners know what is the best way they can learn more about you and your business, and then we'll say goodbye. All right. Well, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's a piece of advice or just something that we're trying to do all the time, but I think the the most challenging the most challenging part of the job for me has been to keep us getting better as we grow and so i every day when i get up and come into work i'm thinking about how to how to grow the company but also how to continue to drive to make sure that the passion stays in it and that while we're getting bigger we're getting better so i don't know if that's an inspirational quote per se but it it's definitely what i'm thinking about when i when i show up for work constantly striving to do better that's a good one to do better and, and while we're getting bigger which sometimes doesn't go hand in hand but <laughs> i try to recognize that and we're we're doing what we can to keep them moving in the same direction at the same time sure as far as how to get a hold of us, I mean, we've got a website that is uh, that is mostly current, and we tend to spend most of our time now working on social media, so we're on Facebook and, and Twitter. And your website is? Our website is www.benchmarkmotoring.com. Well, listeners, you can find everything we've talked about here at carsyad.com slash Scott. Just go into the search bar, type Scott's name in there, and his show notes page will pop up and you can get links to everything that we discussed. Scott, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.